Welcome to Your Torah, a 36-week journey into the world of the 63 books of the Mishnah, 18 minutes at a time. A project of Jofa UK, designed as a special invitation to engage in Torah and make it yours. If you'd like to sponsor or dedicate an episode of Your Torah, please get in touch via our website, which can be found at ukjofa.org. Hi. I'm Rabbi Sarah Mulhern. I teach at the Shalom Hartman Institute of North America, and I'm honored to be participating in the Jofa UK Your Torah podcast, alongside many of my dearest teachers and fellow students of Torah. About a year ago, my husband and I, having both transitioned over the last several years from being full-time students of Torah to working as teachers, as well as having become parents, realized we weren't really learning Torah outside our work anymore. And so we made a commitment to bring Torah Lishma back into our lives by learning a chapter of Mishnah together every night after our daughter's bedtime. While I won't claim we have a perfect record, this regular learning has become a part of the rhythm of our lives, home, and marriage, and I have learned a great deal from the Mishnah itself, and maybe even more from the experience of committing to a practice of daily study. So it's a pleasure to share some of the Mishnayot we've learned together with you today, and especially to study with you Masachet that is itself about the importance of fulfilling our commitments. Masachet Shvot is about the laws of Shvot, not the holiday of Shavuot, but the plural of Shvu'ah, oaths. It is placed here in Seder Nezikin because many, although not all, of the oaths with which it deals takes place in the context of legal proceedings. The laws which are covered in Masachet Shvu'ot primarily derive from the fifth chapter of Leviticus. To summarize, in verses 1 through 13, the Torah tells us that there is a certain asham, a guilt offering, which a person would be required to bring to the temple in three different situations. One, if a person does not step forward to testify in a matter where they are in possession of legally relevant evidence. Two, if a person became and knew that they had become tamay, ritually impure, but then forgot about it and went about their business as if they were tahor, ritually pure, before later realizing their mistake. Or three, if a person made an oath, forgot that they did so, violated that oath, and then realized their mistake. In any of these three situations, all of which our Masachet will deal with in detail, the person must confess and then bring this sacrifice, which is either an animal, two birds, or a measure of flour according to their financial situation. The rabbis in Masachet Shvuot call this sacrifice the Korban Olevayored, the up and down sacrifice, in reference to its sliding scale nature. After a section of verses not relevant to our Masachet about people who accidentally defame holy objects, Leviticus chapter 5 continues in verses 21 through 26, telling us of a person who is entrusted with a deposit or an investment, and then when the owner comes to collect it, lies under oath saying he doesn't have it, or who steals, or who defrauds someone and then takes an oath saying he did not do so, or who finds a lost object and rather than returning it to its owner, claims under oath that he himself owns it. All cases where a person takes an oath claiming something of value that doesn't really belong to him. Such a person, and if they later feel guilty and want to make things right, needs to first return the object of value along with a 20% surcharge to the rightful owner. Then, in order to expiate the sin of their lie under oath, they must bring a sin offering. Masachet Shvu'ot focuses on explicating the laws which spring from these verses in Leviticus 5 and some other related material. Our Masachet has eight chapters. The first two chapters deal with the laws which emerge from verses 2 and 3 about ritual impurity. In chapter 1, the Mishnah clarifies that the sliding scale sacrifice is only brought in a case where a person knows they are impure, then forgets and behaves inappropriately for an impure person, and then later remembers. 
All three steps are necessary. If the person never remembered that they had become Tameh, then the goat slaughtered inside the temple as part of the Yom Kippur ritual will atone for them. If they only realized after the fact that they had been impure and behaved inappropriately, the goat sent away into the desert as a part of the Yom Kippur ritual will atone for them. If they never realized, either before or after the fact of becoming ritually impure, the Mishnah records a disagreement about whether the new moon, Rosh Chodesh, sacrifices, or the festival, Regalim, sacrifices, will do the trick. And while we're on the subject of atonement, the Mishnah takes the opportunity to clarify exactly which sins and which people are atoned for by which of the several animals at play in the Yom Kippur ritual detailed in Leviticus 16. The second chapter deals with the unintentional violations of sanctity that a ritually impure person might commit, which would require bringing a sliding scale sacrifice. The first scenario is that a ritually impure person might eat sanctified food, which is restricted to consumption by ritually pure people. The second scenario is that a ritually impure person might enter the temple precinct, which is a place where only ritually pure people should go. Both scenarios can come about due to two different kinds of forgetfulness. First, forgetting that one is impure in the first place, or secondly, realizing that one is impure, but not understanding that the food one is consuming is pure, or that one has entered the temple precinct. The Mishnah also records a disagreement about whether someone is liable for one or two sacrifices if they forget both things, both that they are ritually impure and that they are in the temple. Finally, it addresses what to do if you become impure while you are already standing in the temple. Spoiler alert, you should leave very quickly and by the shortest possible route. In chapter 3, we turn to our primary topic, oaths. The Mishnah discusses six different kinds of oaths. One, the Shvu'at Bitui, a personal oath. Two, the Shu'at Shav, an incoherent oath. Three, the Shu'at Ha'idut, an oath about testimony. Four, the Shu'at Ha'pikadon, oaths about deposits and other financial matters. Five, the Shu'at Ha'dayanim, oaths imposed by the court. And finally, six, Shu'at Ha'shomrin, oaths taken by temporary guardians of objects of value. Chapter three starts us off with the Shu'at Bitui, the personal oath. If a person intentionally takes an oath either about the future, promising to do or not do something, and then does not follow through, or swears falsely about the past, promising that they did or did not do something, when in fact that is not the case, they are liable for lashes. If they took such an oath unintentionally, perhaps they thought the statement they were making about the past was true, or they failed to fulfill their future commitment by accident, then they have to bring the sliding scale sacrifice. The Mishnah then discusses the finer details of such oaths. For example, how many times can someone be liable for violating a multiple part oath, which depends on how exactly they phrased it, or the fact that a person is exempt from punishment for breaking an oath to fast if they ate something which is not really food. This kind of oath when taken about the future is in fact very similar to a neder, a vow, which gets its own masachet and was discussed beautifully a few weeks ago on this podcast by Alana Kershan. The Mishnah then moves on to the Shvu'at Shav, the incoherent oath. These are oaths either about something obviously untrue, so if I swore to you that I was 10 feet tall, or about something impossible, like if I swore to you that I saw a pig fly. This category also applies to contradictory oaths, either an oath that is taken in contradiction to the Torah, like if I swore not to wave a lulav on Sukkot, or if I took an oath which contradicted another oath that I had made previously. A person who takes an incoherent oath intentionally receives lashes, while if it was done unintentionally, they will bring the korban olevirid. The fourth chapter deals with the shuata idut. This refers to a situation where a person knows information that is relevant to a legal case, but refuses to testify. 
swearing falsely that he does not have any evidence to give. Doing so intentionally will incur the sliding scale sacrifice. Mistakenly but honestly claiming that one doesn't have relevant information incurs no punishment at all. These oaths are restricted to those legally capable of testifying and are only applicable in monetary cases, such as theft, fraud, or damages, but not personal status cases. Shruata'idu can only be imposed directly by a plaintiff seeking testimony to support his claim and can only be applied to the past. So for example, a plaintiff cannot preemptively require two people to promise to testify about something he's about to do. The Mishnah again details the precise language used in the oath, the implications of various word choices for how many sacrifices a person would have to bring, and specifically which names of God would render the oath legally valid. In the fifth chapter, the Mishnah turns its attention to Shu'at HaPikadon. While this category is named for a situation in which a person claims to have given you a deposit and you swear not to have it, in fact the category includes any situation where a person claims you owe them financially, whether because they gave you a deposit and you have not returned it, or because they gave you a loan and you have not paid it back, or because you found their lost object and you didn't bring it to them, or because you stole from them, or because you destroyed their property. In any of those cases, if you take an oath swearing that you don't owe them the money, Intentionally lying in such a situation would incur an obligation to return the original object or money of equal value, plus an additional fine equaling 20% of the principal's value, and give a guilt offering to the temple. I want to pause here to note that the Mishnah in this chapter includes in the list of financial charges that a person might be asked to make an oath to deny the charge of rape. The rabbis here follow the Torah's understanding of rape as a financial crime against the victim's father. This is a very painful and complicated topic, which I can't do justice here, but which I also don't want to simply skip over, especially in the context of a podcast where women are learning and teaching these texts together. The sixth chapter, moving on, um, deals with Shu'at Hadayanim, which functions very similarly to the Shu'at HaPikadon just discussed, but with one important difference. In the previous chapter, the person denies the entirety of the financial claim made against them. Here, the person admits to owing some, but not all of it. In this case, the court makes them swear that they do not owe the rest of the amount. This kind of shu'a is also administered in a case where a person makes a financial claim, but there's only one witness, which is not legally enforceable under Jewish law. The Mishnah then enumerates scenarios where these oaths are totally inapplicable, such as claims against minors or the legally incompetent. We also learn that oaths have their limits as a legal tool. They cannot resolve disputes where there are written contracts to examine or any dispute over land, slaves, or sanctified objects. To this point, the Mishnah has dealt with cases where a person is asked to pay money, takes an oath denying all or part of the claim, and is thereby exempted from payment. Chapter 7 deals with cases in which someone takes an oath that forces someone else to pay. For example, if a person takes an oath that you worked for them and haven't paid their wage, or if they swear that you wounded them and haven't paid their medical bills, or if a shopkeeper has a good record that you bought in his store on credit and then never paid your bill, the court will require you to pay them on the basis of that oath. The Mishnah here also discusses some groups of people and situations where we are more likely to suspect false oaths, like known gamblers. The Mishnah also discusses cases where oaths are administered when paying out inheritances or ketubot, payments to widows or divorcees on the termination of a marriage. The final chapter of Masechet Shvu'ot deals with oaths taken in a case of various kinds of paid and unpaid guards, borrowers, and renters. Since these laws are covered in much more detail in Masechet Baba I'll refer you back to the recent episode of this podcast from Davida Kolmar to learn more about that. While it's easy, at least for a person like me, 
who finds legal proceedings and court cases endlessly fascinating to get lost in the details of each case, it's important to take a step back and notice the not at all obvious assumptions underlying the whole Masechet, that a person's speech is so powerful that a mere statement can create truth out of uncertainty, impose or erase a debt, and even create an obligation or prohibition on par with those created by God through the laws of the Torah. This is a profound and surprising idea, which is exposed in a short, beautiful exchange between Rabbi Akiva and the sages in the first Mishnah of chapter 3. It reads as follows. If someone takes an oath that I will not eat, and then eats a minute amount, he is liable, according to Rabbi Akiva. The sages say to Rabbi Akiva, where do we find in general that one who eats a minute amount is liable such that this one should be liable? Rabbi Akiva said to them, and where do we find in general that someone who speaks can incur a sacrifice such that this one can speak and bring a sacrifice? In other words, Rabbi Akiva points out that if a person takes an oath to fast and then eats a tiny infinitesimal amount of food, they are guilty of breaking their oath. This is extremely strange. One is not considered guilty of breaking Yom Kippur on a Torah level for eating such a tiny amount of food, which is a fast imposed directly from God and in all ways very serious. But here, when the fast is based only on the individual's whim, they are guilty on a biblical level and must bring a sacrifice? The sages therefore object, saying, Akiva, we never obligate people for eating such minute amounts on fast days. Where are you coming up with such an extreme position? Rabbi Akiva responds with a rhetorical question. Is my position any crazier than the basic underlying idea of all these laws of oaths, which show that a person can create an obligation on themselves to bring a sacrifice to the temple merely from their own words? The sages do not, and perhaps cannot, respond. The idea that our words are so powerful that they create responsibilities as important as divine command is indeed radical, and to me, beautiful. The author Stephen Covey writes that a person of integrity is a person who regularly makes commitments and then regularly lives up to them. While I hope none of us are ever in a position where we are taking oaths in court because of a financial dispute, and while the halacha generally encourages us to be very reticent about taking formal oaths or vows because of their deep seriousness, this core message is highly relevant to how we operate in the world every day. Let us remember that just as God spoke the world into being, our words are deeply powerful and can create worlds. And let us strive to speak with honesty and live lives of integrity in which we live up to the commitments and promises we take on. This episode of Your Torah is brought to you by Jofa UK in collaboration with women from around the world who all share a passion for Torah study. If you are enjoying your Torah, consider sponsoring an episode. Find out more by visiting ukjova.org. Join the conversation on social media using the hashtag YourTorah.